Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. The Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Monday, May 15th. If you say so. 2023. Okay. Could be May 15th, you know. Yeah, it continues to be uh, glorious here. Yeah, it's wonderful. Beautiful. Beautiful. Very weather. nice spring. Yes. And uh, we've been biking up a storm mm-hmm. and hope to do more. We will. Uh, we might go to the shore tomorrow. Who knows? We had a nice uh, Mother's Day, mm-hmm. low key, very low key. We we celebrated ahead of time with Hazi, with Hazi, Hazi yes. boy. Well, that that tires you out. You need to recover from that. Hazi has learned to climb, which is uh, bizarre because no one in our family ever climbed anything. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's not a Russian thing, I don't think. But Hazi uh, climbs, which is so. A there you have it. Yeah. So uh, measures must be taken. Yes, yeah, that's that's for sure. Sure. And we does. had uh, we had a good dinner. I made one of those New York Times recipes: pasta primavera turned into lasagna. Yeah, well, it was pretty good, one. wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was. And asparagus, peas, you know, all the all the springtime delights. There was an article in Times yesterday about asparagus. I don't know if you caught it. Asparagus is the thing. Asparagus is attracting a lot of attention this year. Oh yeah, it's that's uh, it's the time of year for that. Well, it's about time it caught And it on. weighed about uh, ten pounds. The one lasagna, it was oh. a little crazy. Oh, yeah, I mean yeah. you you helped carry it out yeah. to the. Well, I, I carried it all by myself, but yeah, it was it was uh, that's. But lasagna can be like that. It's layers and layers. Right? Well, it's a lot of cheese. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, it was tasty. Yeah, it was good. And then I went online to see what uh, people are, what kind of variations people did, to make it work. Uh-huh. You know, the, the comments online to uh, articles, recipes, whatever, in the New York Times are sometimes the best part of the article. Yeah, I never, I don't do it online, so I don't see that. Yeah. So that's... Well, you've, uh, you've got to start. Well, aren't they usually like snippy? They can be everything. They can be heartfelt. Mm-hmm. They can be stupid. They mm-hmm. can be hilarious. Mm-hmm. They can be, you know, there are a lot of like uh, supercilious, snobby uh, New York Times readers mm-hmm. and cooks mm-hmm. and uh, the, the cooking ones are always very often start out with a uh, nice recipe of course i actually used this and that and did this and you know did this the way and they list all of their changes to the recipe and then there'll be somebody the next writer will be exasperated and say well it's not really the same recipe anymore is it it's your recipes, but you know who really cares? Right, who cares? Um, so and then, you know, as well as there, with the recipes, there can also be helpful hints, like how to actually do this in case the uh, writer of the recipe did not tell you. But um, I, I do always enjoy the comments. Well, online is the way to go with the times. That's that we've now discovered uh, in a very graphic way. So, well. I've been reading the New York Times That's online true. for years. But here's the years. thing. But we do read the physical paper. Yes. And we enjoy that. Right. And we often, I often find things in the paper paper that I didn't see, that didn't notice online. Because, of course, the, you know, the online articles are, you know, they, they choose to highlight what they highlight. And... Uh, some things will pop up well, and some things will not. Some all, things will have a picture. Also, you go to the not. things you're interested in and you, you 
and therefore you don't see the things you're not interested in. But when you have the paper in front of you, your eye catches a lot of what's going on on the page. And it's not unusual to be drawn to an article that you would never dial up if you were online. Uh, but there it is in front of you. When you read the first paragraph, you see a picture or a caption, you say, no kidding. And you read the article. And so, I'm not anti-digital news. No, we're not. Not at all. I get a lot out but, of but, but, but you're loading this up without framing the, the issue. Okay, here's, here, here's what this is about. You, but we got love to get the paper. Okay. That's what this is called. Time to then read the paper. Paper meaning paper. So uh, we uh, get the paper delivered, or at least we did. Uh, get a notice from the New York Times. No, I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that. Uh, no notice from the New York we, Times. Right. That's exactly it. We, we did we not get, get any We get notice. a notice from our delivery person that says that starting uh, May 8th, uh, she's been fired from the New York Times. So she's out of, out of a job. She won't be delivering the New York Times. Uh, and, and she uh, said the Times and the Wall Street Journal yeah, and becoming, uh, other newspapers in the area that be, she used to deliver yes. will now all come through the mail. All right. So we said, well, this will be interesting. We'll see where this goes. And when it comes Monday, May 8th, we'll go to the mailbox and see if the Times is there. So we go and we only get the journal on the weekend. So that's uh, that's not an immediate concern. So we go to the mailbox on May 8th. Uh, there's no New York Times. And we say, well, it's a transition difficulty. You know, you got to give them a couple of days to get it going. We go to the mailbox on May 9th. There's no New York Times. And uh, still have nothing May 10th. And I say to you, is it possible that what the Times is doing, unannounced, is switching to a delivery system where they're just putting the papers in the mail and we'll get them three or four days after they're published? Is that possible? And you say to me, no, no, no. no. It, it, that, I assumed that just like the Times would drop off. Whoa, 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 whoa. You said to me, no, that's not possible. Just uh, to yeah, finish my I thought. assumed right. that the Times would, just like Times would drop off the pile of papers to right. Janine, our delivery person. Right. And she would deliver them. Right. They will drop off the papers at the post office. And when the mailman comes to our house on Monday, yes, he will bring... The Monday newspaper. But implicit, quite apart from being critically evaluating how the Times are going to operate, implicit in both our minds is that the paper arrives the day the paper is published. That's how one reads a newspaper. Okay. Anyway, long story short, uh, what happens on, was it Wednesday or Thursday? What do we get in the mailbox? Monday's newspaper. And it turns out that the Times' brilliant scheme which is so seamless that it didn't require any announcement because who would, you know, who would object or even see an issue, is to mail the paper in such a way that every day's paper, let's call Monday's paper, gets to you on Thursday. Tuesday's paper gets to you on Friday. And, uh, and, we, and we're looking at each other in disbelief, not even so much that, you know, if the Times doesn't want to sell papers uh, with a delivery service, that's totally up to them. That's totally fine. But apparently... Times doesn't even see an issue as to the paper coming three or four days after it's published. Doesn't see the issue. Doesn't right, see it. Right. So, so, so you end up on the phone with the New York Times people. and Well, I felt I was mystified. I felt I must have missed an email right. where they would announce this. Because how could you make that big a change and not mention it? Right. And I went through my emails. I hadn't, uh, I didn't find anything. Yeah. And uh, then I called up the New York Times, right. and they said, "Yeah, no, they haven't uh, sent out anything about that." 
Um, but it, why would you? Because <laughs> you're going to get the paper. And you right. say, well, but, but we're I getting say, but the paper. I'm not getting the paper. We're getting the paper four days later. They say, I don't see the issue. You're getting so a newspaper. Said, I mean, so this is like mind-boggling, right? right? And they, they said, well, yeah, it looks... I, of course, I had to go through several people. And the person says, yeah, it may be that you get the paper three or four days late. <laughs> later. <laughs> later. 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 Not late. In their mind, not late, it's not late. Because it's all... It's timeless. And I said... <laughs> I really have no interest in reading it, <laughs> at least. Um, so, and they said, uh, so I think I will just switch to digital-only subscription, right. and yeah. we will buy our own paper. Mm-hmm. And they said, but how about this? We can give you the digital plus the Sunday Times right. at, at less than it will cost you right. for just the digital. Right. And I said, well, when will I get the Sunday Times? And they said, probably Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, said, you know, for, I don't know, 50 years, I've been reading the Sunday Times on Sunday. It's get up and it's what you do on Sunday. Listen, listen. Why would I? (laughs) This is insane. I mean, the Times invests, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 million dollars every year on ensuring that its papers do get delivered. On the same day, they have trucks they hire to deliver things well, at five tired in the morning. Of that. They're tired. Of that. <laughs> They've moved on. It's no longer a daily newspaper. It's something like National Geographic. You read it when you read it. Who knows? But here's the capper on this. So it comes to Saturday, and we assume God knows when the Wall Street Journal is going to come. We'd get the weekend edition, and Saturday morning would be the day that we might get it. But so, I so by now it. you have been going out to the deli right. to get the paper. So I go out and buy. And the guy at the deli says, "Yeah, I'm ordering a lot of." <laughs> Papers. papers Everyone's now. canceling. Yeah. But so, so I go out to the deli and I buy the Saturday Wall Street Journal. I come home. Guess what's in the mailbox on Saturday? The Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal has figured out how to use the mail system to, get to deliver papers. it the same day in a way that the Times either cannot figure out or doesn't care to figure out. And they're not interested. So I don't know. It, this is you know, this is a high class problem to have. It's not the biggest deal in the world. But it's unbelievable. Not so much that the Times doesn't give us any service. It, they, they don't see the issue. Why would you care about getting the paper three days later? It's still the time. Well, it... Uh, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. It's, it's also just mind-boggling that they wouldn't... Tell us. ...contact but us. But it's consistent, because they don't, they don't they see... They wouldn't it. tell us. It's not a change. It's just the paper they, four days later. What's, how what's stupid change? do they think we are? <laughs> I, I, I think they think we're pretty stupid. Uh, that, I, 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 or the, to the extent they considered us at all. So, so enough so, about that. So we, we did get a very good deal on a yeah, digital Because we're older people. They, 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 yeah, everything's they, uh, they yeah, have older, a special. Special discount. A special. Right. That's so, a dollar a week. A week. Yeah, that's great. Wow. Yeah. But we're still, you know. Buying the paper. But it's increased your... Social engagement, you now. I chat up the guys at the deli. deli yeah, I'll be buying. Uh, I'll be buying lottery tickets soon. So uh, we went to the theater. We saw the Habit of Art. Yeah, uh, we, at a theater we've been. I to read before. a review. You read a review. It was and, a critic's uh, pick in the New York Times. Boom! Friday, you know, we made the plan on Friday morning, and yeah, we, we went, went Friday evening. Went we, Friday we, we, evening. You know, grass grows under our feet, Tims, and that's the way we are. We're movers and shakers. So The Habit of Art is a play by Alan Bennett, who famously wrote The History Boys uh, and, and several other plays. And you saw, what, The Woman in the Van? The movie? Lady in the Lady Van. Lady in the Van. Um, 
So which was also a movie. Yes, he's in English. Which was a movie. Well, we saw the I You saw the movie. I saw the movie. Um it was a play. Right. It started out as a play. It was with the Maggie Smith. Smith. So uh yes. So anyway, we saw it on Friday. And uh it's a it's an interesting play. It, I had to look up the background of it. It's actually it it, it debuted in two thousand nine, which I didn't quite realize. And it, it's sort of a play within a play. It's a theater group comes together uh, that's doing a play uh, based on an imagined encounter between W.H. Auden, the poet, and Benjamin Britten, the composer. Now, they apparently knew each other, but the, the play imagines a specific encounter uh, when they're both older, in their early 60s, and with their major accomplishments behind them, while Benjamin Britten, though, is still writing uh, an opera, uh, Death in Venice, and he comes to visit W.H. Auden to discuss it. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. I don't know how to describe it. How would you describe it? I mean, it, it, it's, uh, again, play within a play construct. Um, uh, I thought it was very good. I mean... Uh, it was very good. Well, again, you know, it's one of those... Uh, it's a character study. It's a character study, but there's a lot of great language in it. Yes. Um, I mean, you just have to listen carefully to keep up. Yeah. It's not that the, you know, um, you need to know a lot about poetry or Benjamin Britten's music yeah. uh, to understand what's going on. You know, it's about uh, people and... Uh, life and mm. relationships and uh love uh, etc um so so it's, it's brilliant dialogue it, brilliant it, dialogue which is just a delight to listen to and it's almost i almost you can almost say brilliant monologue to some extent because the lead character is the, the wh Auden character and wh Auden, the great poet and there that's a point of emphasis in the play he's brilliant with words he's he's terribly effervescent effervescent uh, articulate. He goes on and on about things. He's insufferable sometimes, but he's brilliant uh, to listen to. And Benjamin Britten's uh, medium is not words; it's it's music. He's quite convincing the actor who's playing Benjamin Britten of being that kind of musician, and he has some trenchant observations to make. But even he, in the in the presence of Auden, can't keep up with Auden because the medium they're using is words; it's not music. But he has some apt observations at the same time and, and they both have some issues they're working them back and forth uh so it's not a standard play in the sense that you're you know the action uh, advances and you're moving toward a critical moment uh pivot in the plot to climax and it's right. not like that right. it's very much just the character study which they're musing uh on their lives what they plan what would really grips them what uh you know what their passions are and in this case certainly in the case of Auden. It's the habit of art. It's the idea that uh, even though he's fetching, if I can use an English term, about all kinds of things, what would really captivate him, just the thought of it, the prospect of it, would captivate him, is the opportunity to do something creative again. And that's what's exciting about him seeing Benjamin Britten. And Britten has his own issues yeah. to discuss. So, um, any event. But it was well acted. Yeah, brilliant. There's so many, I mean, there are a variety of characters there. There's several women uh, you know, uh, other subsidiary characters. Right, right. There's a great deal of humor. Right. Um, and uh, just well done. We were, in the, again, the, it was the 59 East 59th. Yeah, which is an odd location uh, for a theater. theater. It's an East Side theater. And it's small. It's got to be like 200. 199 seats. And uh, 
and so it's a, it's a delight to be in that situation yeah. and uh, see such a good play. Oh, so yeah, I like that. Habit of art. Yeah. But, uh, you know, um, all interesting characters. Auden. Um, Britain. Britain. Uh, the playwright. Yeah. Um, Alan Bennett. The imagined playwright. No, the real playwright. The real playwright. The, the Bennett. real, and then, and, and yeah, he's not a character. And the way in the he play. portrays the playwright of the play that's being put on is yeah. uh, in there too, and and uh, you wonder how much of that is, uh, is out, a reflection well, or acting I, I, out. Not much, because uh, he's kind of a, a questionable character. In some I don't know, but, was, but uh, so again, kind of an impromptu theater trip, yes. which our best ones usually are. Yeah. All right, so uh, you had a couple of swimming things. Oh, my goodness. Um, so I didn't even read this article at first. But I What's the point? You know why I read it? Because I read the whole paper. <laughs> I know yeah. you read the whole paper. It's on it's his it's paper. Called, the, t- the title of it is The 40 Mile Freestyle. Right. You know, I, you know, loyal listeners to the podcast will know that I have done a mile swim yeah. several times. Right. Uh, and that's enough. That's more than enough. Wrong. Forty miles 40. Uh, is really but upsetting. To be, well, to be fair, the forty mile swim is broken up over four days. Right. All right. It's out in Arizona. So, so, Nonetheless, you're doing like ten miles a day. You could do that. No, are you kidding? <laughs> ten miles a day. Oh my god. Um, they go. They swim. Uh, you know, I can't even keep track of all, all the well, it, where they're going. They're, they have, they um, start out in, um, I don't know, one well, place. It doesn't, all right, <laughs> that doesn't go, make a difference where they The speak. next day they go to Canyon the, Lake. The, the, the next day they go to Apache Lake. It's in Lake. the Southwest. The next day they go to Roosevelt Lake. So four lake like swims. Nine miles, eight miles, miles, 17 miles. Right, and then nine miles. Again. And then six miles. Right, right. You know. The funny um, thing is... The, the fir- their first day, the water is fifty-three degrees. But here's the thing: they all—that's cold. They all, some of them arrive with uh, wetsuits, but they all shed them. I, that's what the article says. The article says, well, you know, they all get uh, comfortable enough that they throw off the wetsuits and they they well, swim without the wetsuits. Open swim people and generally, um, wetsuits are forbidden in open oh, but, swim. But they're events. allowed here, technically. And they're allowed here, but they don't. But nobody use them. does it. But nobody does. You know, and why, no. Why would you? Know, you? Why would you? Uh, yeah. So uh, that's no something. No fancy smartwatches or whatever. But you know. they also make the point that it's people of some differing physiques. It's not all everyone looks like, you know, Mr. and Mrs. America. They're not all chiseled physiques. Uh, they're different kinds of physiques which lend themselves to longer distance swimming. They even make the point that it's women do better. It's mostly women. It's mostly women. It's 58 swimmers. Yeah. 38 are women. Yeah. And then somebody says, yeah, as a matter of fact, in the open swimming world, women dominate. That's right. They say, and they make all other like ultra things, men dominate. Right. In swimming, women dominate. In other words, yeah, ultra marathons, all that stuff, it's dominated you by men. You know why? They women say because swim. women have the grit. Yeah, well, but see, that, that's wrong. Okay, they say that. The resilience. Wrong. Right, yeah. We let the hard stuff flow yeah, through yeah, yeah, quickly it, 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 and keep going yeah, except that would also be true of ultra marathon running and that's all men so I, I don't that's not it there's something else going on it might have something to do with body mass and buoyancy some of the people are pretty young uh not everybody some a lot of the people are older yeah one guy has had a heart attack well 
I would sort of 25 miles in would have. Yeah. Yes. Not during the thing. <laughs> Not during the thing. Years ago. Yeah. He he was a swimmer. Yeah, but actually, that's one of the better swimmers. Yeah. That's, that's, that's one. I think that guy won one a year or something like that. He was working. Yes, he did. He did. He worked his way back from a heart attack. All right. Well. Anyway, you know, more power to them. I want to pass it on I'm to you. I'm not interested. You could, I, it's time that you move the head, Tempson. And what's the first thing? They, what do they drink when they get out of the water? Beer. Beer, beer of beer. course. I, have I a, could do that part. A big barrel of beer yeah. and a little crate of energy drinks. And no one but takes you know, they've been drinks. drinking the energy stuff the whole time. Yeah. They're swimming. Yeah. They're, you know, they're sick of that stuff. Yeah. Energy gels, fruit, fruit purees. Licorice shots of every time maple syrup. I do a ten mile swim. I, I grab a beer. That's 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 me. I, I identify with that. All right. So you had another article. It's amazing. Swimming. It's that popular. Yeah. You have another article. Fifty eight people. <laughs> another article about swimming. Do I really? The Sen. The Sen. Yeah. Swimming in the Sen. Yeah. So uh, you know they're supposed to have the Olympics in Paris coming up. In 2024 or something. Yes. I had no yes. idea. Nobody and, wants the Olympics uh, anymore. You know, Why does Paris want the, the Olympics? It's crazy. Everybody wants the Olympics, so no, they it don't. Call, calls Not attention anymore. to the location yeah. and brings in tourism. Yeah. You know, no one's heard of Paris. It's a small <laughs> town in France. <laughs> that must be it. So let's drum up a little business right. for them. That's right. Okay. That's, yeah, like Cutter. Right. You know, yeah. People right. think Paris is all about art, you know. It's about swimming. Culture. Right. <laughs> It's about the sewers. Well, right. I mean, that is one of the the famous uh, tours, I think, of right. sewers, Paris is right. the sewer system. Right. All right. Well, anyway, the Seine is disgusting. I mean, yeah. if you just look at it, there's there's no thought of going swimming in it. Although, um, there were in uh, Paris's first Olympics in 1900, yeah. they had seven events in the Seine. Okay. It's a long and time then, ago. But by 1923... A lot of water under the bridge. By 1923, yeah. swimming was banned in the Seine. But mm. a lot of people kept swimming in the Seine. There are pictures of people diving in in the 40s, right. etc. But anyway, so here's the problem. The, the sewer system gets overwhelmed during mm. rain. Yeah. Right? So when it rains, um, the... The pipes with the sewage, the, you know, the sink water, the toilet water, the rain water, all end up in the same place and all you know, overflow into the Seine. So the Seine's okay. sen filthy. So, so the Seine is filthy. So how are they going to clean reason. it up? It's a it's like a five prong massive project. Doesn't really. They're planning to have a couple. They're planning to have three events in the Seine, yeah. if possible. If possible. If possible. Okay. Okay. One would be the swim part of the triathlon, yeah. and then there will be two 10-kilometer swims, one for women, one for men, yeah. uh, in in the Seine as right. well. Yeah. Okay. They've got to get... Uh, they've been doing testing, you know. Um, the water's not that bad. They still have ways to go. Right now, the area where they would swim has gotten like a, a 90% score, 90% fair, which means um, it's... The Olympic Committee could decide that it's swimmable, but oh, okay. um, it's not fabulous. Anyway, to get it to the point where it's clean, and this has been going on for years, Jacques Chirac said in like uh, 1990, in three years, I will swim in the Seine. Right. And of course, he didn't. Um, but, you know, that's a politician kind mm. of thing, right? Um, anyway, so one of the things they're doing is they're building 
they have built a massive reservoir underground, okay, with a 700-meter uh, tunnel going to it mm-hmm. so that when some of this overflow happens, instead of going in directly into the Seine, it can go into this reservoir, yeah. okay, until um, the proper channels uh, recede and can accept mm-hmm. uh, the overflows. So there's that. And, uh, you know... Um, they say the Seine overflows badly, like um, 12 times a year. Their dream is to get it back to maybe like two times a year, and they can still sort of manage the kind of bacteria that's in the water. So number one is building that tunnel with the giant reservoir. Um, so that's one and two. Another is doing special acid treatments upstream at sewage plants, mm-hmm. um, you know, adding acid to kill the E. coli and, you know, the fecal bacteria. All right. Okay. So there's that. Then there is um, the piping, uh, the old pipes. So in some places, the pipes, the sewage pipes from people's houses, there are two systems, one for the sewer and one for the rain. Okay. They, and the rain can go right into the Seine, Right. In many houses, the pipes are hooked up the wrong way so that the the house sewage pipe goes directly into the pipe going to the Seine. Mm-hmm. So they have to change the pipe mm-hmm. to put it, you know, just hook it up to the right system. Okay. In some places, they were never, you know, um, hooked up to the sewage system. They were just people's... Um, wastewater waste water yeah. was piping right into the Seine. Yeah. Okay, so they're going house to house. Mm-hmm. They have about at least twenty thousand homes. They need to change. Mm-hmm. All right. Of those, so far only five thousand people have agreed. Even though there are grants to, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, you can imagine if you're living there and somebody comes and said, well, you know. Uh, it's going to cost X, uh, you know, thousand euros yeah. for you. And yeah, but I would think it's we're illegal. going to change your pipes, and it'll only cost you like six thousand. Yeah, but euros. I would think it's, it's illegal to discharge it. So I don't think so. I don't see why they get a choice. I mean, if if, if you were discharging know. stuff, that's but, coming along, yeah. all right. Um, in some place, in some areas, they've been had great success with that, yeah. but they're still only about seven to five percent. Then the other problem is boats on the Seine. Yeah. A lot of boats just discharge. Oh, God. Um, yeah. Waste right into the set. Well, that That's not with- the biggest problem, but uh, they're working on that as well. It's uh, so. Anyway, there is a possibility someday you could go for a dip in the Seine. Okay, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, so that swim they're going to do there, ten kilometers or six miles. It's nothing, nothing compared to what these other guys are doing. The, uh, they're, they're, they're probably doing it in like one day, <laughs> less than a day. All right, so the Giants have a new tight end. This was big excitement for the Giants. They signed a guy named Darren Waller, who's I only knew was a star tight end for the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, the Giants were able to uh, trade for him because uh, he's been injured, uh, but he's uh, considered a really skilled, uh, very big, strong guy and uh, like an all-star. The Giants don't have many of those guys. So there's an article that shows up in the Times. It uh, says star tight end. It's empowering chapter to musical legacy. And they say that Darren Waller's great-grandfather was a musician that's fairly well-known, Thomas Waller. 
I say Thomas Waller. And they say sometimes known as fats. And I go, what? What? Darius Waller's great-grandfather was Fats Waller? Fats, Fats Waller. Uh, Wait, how is that so unbelievable? Fats Waller's a huge musical figure. It's know, like he's like it's Louis Armstrong or his grandfather. Okay, right. so I'm not saying very cool. Yeah, I'm not saying I don't believe it. Okay. Okay, so Fats Waller, great uh, stride piano, jazz uh, piano musician, uh, founder of a lot of jazz stuff, wrote Eight Misbehaving to give you a few songs, Honeysuckle Rose, I Can't Give You Anything But Love Baby. I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter until the real thing comes along. I could go on. You know, genius. All right. right? Fats Waller is his great uh, grandfather, which well, is a, a nice legacy. And you said he's musical too? Well, the story pull, hangs together because, well, actually, it's a long, involved story. And I didn't know this about Darren Waller. Darren Waller was an accomplished uh, college player. He's six foot six, a big guy, great tight end. But, uh, Baltimore uh, Ravens uh, drafted him, the sixth round of draft, not particularly high, and he was known to have drug problems. Mm-hmm. And he, he sure enough did have drug problems, and he was suspended for the entire 2017 season, and during which he was in a rehab program in Camden, Maine. Uh, you know, he got a job uh, working at a local grocery store. It wasn't clear he was going to have any kind of NFL career at all. He was really starting from the beginning. And he basically started concentrating on music. And uh, what's, his father was very excited about it because he knew well, because his father's grandfather, his fat father, said, no, no, he, this guy could have real musical talent. It's in our blood. And sure enough, he did. Father encouraged him. He really went somewhere with it, according to Waller and the What York. kind of music is he doing? Well, it's rap music primarily. And it's a combination of producing and writing and performing. And okay. I can't say he's a big star. But, you know, he is actually getting some of his music out there. And he credits it for being key in his rehabilitation. He's able to express himself through music. Um, And uh, there's another funny part of the story was he he just... And he he got back in the NFL, became an all-star. And as a matter of fact, uh, this past offseason, he married um, a star of the WNBA, a woman named Kelsey Plum which was great because he was playing for the Las Vegas Raiders. She was playing for the Las Vegas Aces, I think, uh, which was all great until he got traded to the Giants. So now uh, they're expecting the first child, and he's in New York, and she's in Las Vegas. But they'll work that out. They'll work (laughs) it out. As he says, I heard a friend say once that blessings can stack so high they look like problems. That's not a problem. So, so anyway, I, it's amazing. Well, that's Fats Waller. I hope he, I hope he works out with the Giants. Another reason to follow the Giants, Thames, and we'll be following them more closely than ever. Yeah, you know, I love the personal interest stuff. Oh, good, good. I'm glad. All right, the mural, Thames, the murals. Yeah, I don't know if these are really murals, but uh, anyway, they're art. Yeah. Um, no, it's just a fun discovery. Um, Coming up, there's a um, art show at the Park Avenue Armory, and uh, one of the um, exhibitors, the Bernard Goldberg Fine Arts Gallery, yeah. has two big oval wall paintings, murals, um, that are from a Longchamp uh, restaurant that was in the basement of the Empire State Building. I remember Longchamp. Yeah, you yeah. do? Really? Yeah. Oh, the restaurant? Sure. You've sure. been there? 
No, I never been there, but they used to advertise and play bowls all the time. Okay. Um, so there were these eight enormous oval murals mm-hmm. by Winold Rice, uh, painted in 1938. And uh, when the um, restaurant was, uh, you know, renovated mm-hmm. uh, in uh, the 1960s, they all disappeared. Yeah. Uh, which is a little bit odd. Because Rice did a lot of work mm. all over New York for a mm. lot of places. And, you know, his furniture is around. He yeah. did uh, portraits of a variety of people. He designed um, all kinds of things. Um, and uh, so, but all these murals just disappeared. I mean, it's just weird that even in the 60s, um, you know, you're still throwing out uh, art deco mm-hmm. art did in the 60s did no one think it was art then why, why does it just get I trashed know. I don't know um, so so anyway and these two uh, out of nowhere uh, two of these opals have turned up and uh, they are um, for sale if you want one okay okay um, I mean they were uh uh, they were actually, somebody looked into it. Uh, somebody recognized it. Somebody looked into it. They were sold years ago um, at uh, Sotheby's for a couple thousand dollars. And then they were sold at first dibs for something in the mid five figures. And uh, I think now they're looking for quite a sum. Hmm. But anyway, it, it, still, it still kind of boggles my mind that they would just, that, that kind of art uh, just disappeared in the 60s. Because well, it's not like people didn't know about it. So what it reminded me of yeah. was a restaurant, another basement restaurant at the Hotel McAlpin on 34th Street, which I once went to because while I was at the New York Restaurant School, yeah. one night after school, yeah. a group went over right. To have some drinks right. at this place. Yeah. And uh, it was an awful night. Yeah. It was an awful night. Uh, but the restaurant art was amazing. It yeah. was all these terracotta plaques, okay, that uh, were just superb. And it stuck with me all these years that, you know, and uh, so eventually. Where, where are those now? Most of those are gone. Uh, uh, a few of them. Are uh, on view somewhere. Well, so, so, so. Oh, you know what? A few of them were saved and are at a subway yeah. um, station. Right. Okay. So we People be- fought to t- try to save them, but it wasn't. You know, there there are these big scenes. Yeah. Okay. But then there were all these little details. I mean, you would go down there, yeah. and it was just encrusted in this terracotta work, like a Renaissance I, palace. And now it's just all we gone. Be clear about one thing, though. What? Your story didn't take place in the 60s. Your story took place in the late 70s or even early 80s. So maybe it was a little different, right? No, somebody managed to save the big right, pieces. Right, right. But the the what I'm also saying is yeah. the work was the restaurant. Yeah. So that's sad. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. and so I just feel like, remember when we would drive around New York and your parents would go, Oh, this used to be there. This used to be there. Yeah, used sure. to be there. And we just said, oh, shut up, will you? This is so annoying. Yeah, yeah. And now that's where I am. <laughs> this used to be there. Of course. That's the way it is. That's the way it goes. 
Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I could go on about that subject, but yes, some other time. So um, there's a there's a new um, documentary about Yogi Berra. You would think there's there's nothing more to say, uh, but apparently there is. It's called "It Ain't Over," and of course it has all the great uh, Yogi Berra quotes in it. Uh, here I'll give you a few. You can observe a lot by watching. It was deja vu all over again, and of course it I don't over, go to that club over. because it, it, no one goes to that club because it's too crowded. Be, it's too crowded. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're mining a different quote. But okay, that's that's the one you're looking for. Okay. So in any event, uh, so he's known for these kind of kind of somewhat goofy, somewhat sage quotes, depending on how you look at it. He was known because uh, you know he was a pitch man. He sold YooHoo and a lot of stuff. He was known because Yogi Berra is based on Yogi Berra. There's all kinds of cultural reference with Yogi Berra, uh, and he was celebrated as kind of this unlikely sports hero. Yeah. Uh, but it, apparently that irked to some degree. The documentary has really been pushed by his uh, grandchildren, mm-hmm. children and grandchildren. Say, by the way, yeah. he was a good he, no, baseball player? No, he wasn't a good baseball player. He wasn't? He was a great baseball player. Oh, okay. So they're sitting, with, this is the story, they're sitting with Yogi Berra at the 2015 All-Star Game. This is, you know, Yogi Berra just passed a few years ago. And they make a big point of saying, we are introducing... We'd like to come forward, the four greatest living ball players, and they introduce Willie Mays, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, and Johnny Bench. And, not, and, and Yogi Bear is right there. And Yogi Bear is there, and he's sitting in the stands, and he doesn't say anything, and his family is livid. Oh my god! All right. Oh my god! And you, and, and so they they asked about that. Now the story comes up apparently in the documentary, and they say, look. We're not, we got nothing against those guys. They're big, famous guys. But why couldn't they have said five players, you know, and Yogi Berra? Okay, let me say, first of all, that if you say four players, it's Yogi Berra. It's not Johnny Bench. All right? Yogi Berra was that good. Okay. Yogi Berra was on 15 All-Star teams. He was the most valuable player three times. He won 10 championships. Uh, <laughs> Yogi Berra was a great ball player. So the question becomes... How come he's not remembered as a great ball player? Why is, you know, is his image just overshadowed by all these other cute Yogi Berra stories? And yeah. it's something. But the other, re- the simple reason is this: he didn't look like a ball player, right? And they actually have an article that they quote that was written contemporaneously during Berra's career, and he's described as knock kneed, barrel shaped, and he runs like a fat girl in a tight skirt. And this is, you know, an admiring article about Yogi Berra. Well, you compare that to the way they used to idolize Joe DiMaggio. Yeah. You know, married to Marilyn Monroe or, or Mickey or Mantle, Mickey whatever. Mano. Mickey yeah. Mantle. I mean, that just, it, it's the old thing. Does he look the part? He didn't look the part. So uh, <laughs> he was never really given his due as a ball player. So they have a point. They have a that point. It's so frustrating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you have uh, stained glass. Yeah, I'll try to be quick about this. This is another fun story. Um, a Paul Brown, a, a antiques dealer in Lancaster, PA. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Notices on uh, Facebook or somewhere yeah. that uh, some stained glass windows are for sale. Right. In Philly. Right. He goes to Philly. Yeah. They're, they're installed in an old church that's being renovated. 
Okay, that's going to well, it's going to be torn down, right. and a whole different thing is going on. Right. There's these two big windows, and he happens to know the salvage guy who's doing the work, and uh, he arranges to buy these two windows for six thousand right. dollars. Then he has to pay the salvage guy fifteen thousand dollars to take them down, to take right. them out of the wall without right. breaking them. Right. Okay, um, and uh, then he takes them to yeah. The, an auction house right. and Freeman's auction house in Philly yeah. and has them look at them and they ascertain that these are in fact two eight foot in diameter Tiffany windows. Wow. Okay. Um, now Mr. Brown spends another $50,000 yeah. to have them conserved, right. fixed up, cleaned up. Uh, they were pretty uh, encrusted, uh, etc. So they are about to be auctioned off uh, in a few days yeah. at Freeman's, and the estimate is somewhere between one and two hundred thousand per window. Wow! So he could make a lot of money. Meanwhile, okay. So these are from that. These were originally um, put in an auxiliary chapel of St. Paul's Presbyterian Church. Yeah which then became the Hickman Temple African Methodist Church, mm-hmm. which sold the property to the Emmanuel Christian Center yeah. for $1.7 million. And they're going to do a whole big thing there. But and, uh, So the fellow who is currently the pastor there is saying, gee, you know, if I had known they were Tiffany... I wouldn't have sold them. We could use that money for the renovation. Well, it's the way it goes. It's the way it goes. But a lot of the people involved, some of them were saying, I didn't even know Tiffany did windows. I thought that, you know, Tiffany, really? you think of lamps. Oh, God. Well, you, you know, yeah. you're married to someone who oh, yes. knows about Tiffany windows. But, yeah. uh, so, but, so, you know, so well, that's, look. speaking of auctions and discoveries, right. uh, a woman passed away, Judith Miller, who antiquers probably uh, are familiar with. She was uh, on the um, British Antiques Roadshow, and she and her, uh, I guess, ex-husband did the Miller's Antiques Handbook and Price Guide for many, many Were years. Are you familiar with that? Uh, yeah, sort of, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I'm not really a, an antiquer. So, but, uh, you know, it's a pretty uh, ubiquitous thing. But but there are two things about that. First of all, this woman apparently uh, came to embody or uh, represent almost the Antiques Roadshow in Great Britain. She was a key figure, they say, in the article, number one. But what I didn't realize is that the Antiques Roadshow was a British show. That the U.S. Well, the show great was shows are British shows, well, fella. You, did you know that? Did you know that? No. Okay. But I'm not at all surprised. I'm not surprised. But uh, for years, it was a success in Great Britain before it got to the U.S. And the other thing about her is that she had a great breadth. I mean, she wasn't just, you know, an expert in pottery or an expert in jewelry. Apparently, she was interested in everything. Yeah, and she <laughs> she had views on everything. She put a value on anything. You hand her something, and she'd say, "Okay." It's well, part of it was that that was her job. She and her husband compiled these things. But she, it's interesting that she was interested yeah. in antiques. Her parents were not. She this is not like me coming from a long line of, of antique hoarders. Mm-hmm. Um, her parents were all you know, kind of a formica yeah. generation, and uh, you know, she came to it on her own. She loved 
costume jewelry as well as pieces by the Danish sil- yes, silversmith George Jensen. George Jensen. Yeah, I saw that. And she loved chairs. Yes. So this, this is right up your alley. This is right up my well, alley. You're a George I have Jensen George Jensen um, jewelry. I have too many chairs. Well, but she, also, she didn't like sets of chairs. She liked no, individual chairs. And she has, and she was pretty promiscuous in terms of liking, yes. you know, from different all styles. different periods. And what did right? her husband tell her when she went out? Every, every time she would go out antiquing, he would say to her, repeat after me. We do not need one more single chair. Right. Um, and, and, and so yeah. so um, she also understood that the real value of things was in their their memories, yeah. the association. Right. Um, and she tells a wonderful story of a picture that had belonged to an, an aunt of hers and had mm-hmm. a whole story behind it. She said, you know, it's, on a good day, it's probably not even it's $50 worth 50 bucks. Yeah. But to me, you know, it's you know priceless, right. <laughs> of course. All right, um, which, so. which is true of Antiques Roadshow. We watch it. We'll probably watch it tonight. And you know, they put a value on something, and the people are kind of excited. It might be worth two thousand, five thousand, eight thousand dollars, and then they catch their breath. They say, "But I'd never sell," which is, I think, right. Right. Yeah. All right. So uh, I think that's all we have. Is that all we have? Did you want to say anything about anything else? Well, I could just say that uh, uh, a couple weeks ago, my uh, high high school English teacher Sally Alexander passed away. Right, and uh, and um, I wasn't able to go to her funeral, uh, but uh, her events were on the same day as the coronation, which she would have loved mm-hmm. uh, because she was uh, a big uh, fan of. English history, especially mm-hmm. royal history. Um, she uh, she was, uh, we, you know, we've kept in touch all these years. I haven't kept in touch with all that many people for that many years. And uh, she just wrote to me and it had said that the world's gotten too much, too complicated. Um, and she was having a little trouble dealing with it at this point. Uh, but she was still, she was still in there trying, sending me emails, mm-hmm. uh, sending me uh, letters as well. She was uh, the first person who made me feel smart, mm-hmm. who kind of made me feel like a person. You know, those, uh, you know, the end of middle school, the beginning of high school, mm-hmm. uh, when you're trying to figure things out, um, she really um, gave me kind of a boost. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll never forget that. And she was always. Uh, Interesting and interested and uh, great cook, great um, person to socialize with. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I will definitely miss her. But I got to say, I carry her lessons with me forever. No doubt about that. All right. So this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. See you next week.